welcome back everybody to the luke beasley show it is so great to be with you on this tuesday so much to get into today so let's dive right in as you've probably heard a fourth trump indictment is imminent which is pretty wild to think about this is out of the fulton county district attorney's office and the investigation that fanny willis has been heading up into trump's attempts specifically in the state of georgia to overturn possibly unlawfully the 2020 election results. And one of the iconic parts of this is Trump on the phone with Brad Raffensperger asking him to find 11,780 votes, but it's more broad than that. Uh, but we'll always remember that stunning, wild moment. And one of the things that is making people expect any moment now, this fourth indictment to come, is the fact that Atlanta and specifically around the courthouse preparations are in order and I have this CNN reporting for you on that. CNN's Nick Valencia is in Atlanta. Nick, you're seeing some new signs Fulton County is preparing for an indictment against Mr. Trump. What are you seeing? That's right. Security preparations have really ramped up here, Dan. Uh, in the course of the last several weeks, they've been putting up metal barricades here. We understand some of these plastic barricades that they put up, they filled with water to make them harder to move. And of course, part of these ramped up security preparations have to do with the countless threats that the Fulton County DA has received since leading this investigation. Over the course of the last year, some of those threats, Fonnie Willis says, have been credible. She's spoken about it publicly, saying that she's needed to change her own personal security detail. Of course, the rhetoric coming from the former president does not help that. He's called Fonnie Willis a racist. He said that this uh, investigation is politically motivated. And now we're seeing road closures around Fulton County Courthouse. Prior Street, this road right in front of the courthouse has been shut down. I mentioned those barricades. We're seeing a heavier than normal police presence. And there is also this letter that Fonnie Willis sent to law enforcement agencies around Fulton County telling them to be prepared for the potential of an indictment to happen anytime between now and the end of the month or September 1st. Uh, there is two currently, two grand juries seated here in Fulton County. One of them is going to be tasked with hearing the evidence gathered by the special purpose grand jury. Remember, Dana, they handed over their charging recommendations in February. It will be that evidence that the grand jury looks at to decide whether or not indictments will be leveled here and Trump will be arrested and indicted for the fourth time. And we remember a little bit ago, Fannie Willis reaching out to law enforcement sources saying, up security, be prepared, here's the timeline. And as I've previously noted, why would you need to up security significantly if you weren't indicting Donald Trump, or at least if that wasn't what you were pursuing in terms of the grand jury? And it's very likely that they'll hear this evidence and indictment will come down possibly this week. The figure that was given or the particular date was before September 1st, so it could be later in the month, but a lot of the reporting seems to indicate it could happen this week or next week, which is truly historic. Fourth indictment coming soon. And on that note, a little bit more reporting on this first uh, from Ross Story, Fulton County Courthouse, eerily quiet as Trump indictment looms. Orange barricades and metal fences erected last week around the Fulton County Courthouse where a possible indictment of Donald Trump looms has slowed down activity in the area, resulting in less foot traffic and more police presence, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And according to that report, the blocked off sidewalks will be reserved for news crews to camp out if Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis hands Trump his fourth criminal indictment, which is widely expected to happen imminently. 
And here's a little moment from Fannie Willis getting asked about the potential of an indictment. That I took an oath and that the oath requires that I follow the law, that if someone broke the law in Fulton County, Georgia, um, that I have a duty to prosecute. And that's exactly what I plan to do. And if I'm not mistaken, that had to do with a question on the subject of does the federal indictment on similar actions, at least the nationwide effort to overturn possibly unlawfully the free and fair election in 2020 based on that indictment, is that altering your charging decisions or your uh, steps moving forward? And she was saying, I have in my role an obligation to hold people accountable for their violations of the law separate from any other accountability that is coming Trump or anyone else's way and super kind of hard to imagine reality is what we're dealing with now when it comes to the interest in this as Axios reports numb to Trump data shows drop in scandal interest and it takes information from Google Trends looking at how over time as more and more indictments have happened and as we enter into a possible fourth shortly after the third uh that we just saw federally second federal one third total and we wait for the fourth it just gets less and less interesting to the public and axios writes the public's attention to former president's legal drama has declined with each subsequent indictment according to new data pulled across television social media and search activity despite the unprecedented criminal charges against the former president the shock is starting to wear off for now i don't know if i like that that's kind of disturbing that that quickly people can go yeah okay former president getting indicted whatever current presidential candidate and especially because all of the indictments are going to be absolutely historic and important but the most recent one it having the least interest because it's not the first not the second is unfortunate and especially if this applies to the fourth because both the third and the potential fourth have to do with Trump's coup attempt. And it's so important that Americans recognize and then act accordingly the reality that we had a president who attempted to overthrow a free and fair election and install himself president and concocted a, a possibly fraudulent scheme to do so and wanted to throw the democratic results out and just choose himself to be the leader for the next four years, the most anti-democratic action you can imagine for an American president. And so the fact that now he's possibly being held legally accountable for that should be so important, relevant, and interesting to all Americans, but it's not because people are getting kind of numb to it. And in a sense, I don't blame them because it does seem even just doing this job, I I do keep up with it, but it's hard to keep up with, wait, this investigation, this indictment, this one, that one, on these charges, that charge. And so for some people, eventually you just move on with life and go, okay, yeah, a bunch of legal troubles kind of, but I'll keep charging forward. Hopefully the importance is heard and recognized by as many people as possible of Trump being held accountable for all things, all violations of the law, but especially those that implicate the future of our democracy. Came across a really interesting piece out of Politico magazine from uh, Mary Anna Mancuso, who worked within the Forward Party, Andrew Yang's Forward Party, his third party project, and is now coming out and affirming 
a lot of the criticisms and bolstering a lot of the criticisms that have been levied at the forward party really since its inception by many people, including myself. And uh, this piece is titled, I saw the whole, uh, the hollowness, I should say, inside Andrew Yang's new third party. And we'll walk through some of what Mary Anna Mancuso outlined. She worked as the press secretary for the forward party and points out that the criticism from people the concern that this is a very vague kind of political showmanship oriented effort, meaningless effort that really isn't doing what it purports to do and really isn't serving to put forward actual solutions to the problems it purports to care about is absolutely a correct criticism. And that's what a former employee now is saying after working inside of the organization. If you're not familiar, Andrew Yang, uh, ran as a Democrat within the 2020 presidential primary and then ran for mayor of New York City and then started this forward party with the slogan something like not left, not right, but forward. And even though it's admirable to want to do the things that the forward party says it wants to do, like address polarization and division and minimize those things and break down the current hold over the political system of the two major parties, the way that the forward party has gone about implementing that is not as admirable and one of the big red flags that has been called out including by myself has been the lack of any policy positions clear policy stances that the forward party is willing to roll out which is never a good sign so we'll talk more about just third parties and how that would be what would be a better way to go about it i guess and all of that after looking at what uh, Mary Anna Mancuso has to say. When the Forward Party, as she writes, launched in 2022, it defined itself as a movement designed to break through a dysfunctional two-party system that catered to the ideological fringes. To avoid the kind of rigidity and top-down decision-making that marked the two major parties, the new movement announced there would be no traditional party platform. It was viewed as a vestige of the past, a one-size-fits-all approach that stifled democracy. State forward parties would determine their own priorities. Individual candidates would then develop their own policies around those priorities. But the forward party is making a dangerous miscalculation. It is betting that what a party opposes is more important than what it stands for. Motivated by a tech industry ethos that considers disruption for disruption's sake a virtue, forward is following a path blazed by some of the startup culture's biggest debacles, Theranos and WeWork. I know because I saw it from the inside as the national press secretary and then it dives into her story getting involved with the organization and that was a really powerful line and way to put it that sums up how i felt which is it's perfectly fine and well to go around saying that you're against republicans and democrats because of the countless issues with both parties obviously the republican being way worse way way worse not even comparable but it's fair to say the division that that two-party structure has caused or contributes to is something that you want to address, sure. But then to only run off of what you're against, only run off of the fact that you're against division and polarization and not outline what you're for, then leaves a lot to be known. She continues, we had been promised our reform efforts would continue. Instead, I found an organization convinced it could maintain and grow its uh, disparate coalition by not taking any positions at all. Its very existence was premised on the idea that in the future, political parties will succeed by not having a philosophy of government, a shared vision, or even a platform to unite behind. That's not what I signed up for. So just trying to win people over, 
by pointing, as I always say, by pointing at a problem, pointing at problems is really, really easy. It's putting forward solutions. That is the hard part. And asking for people's loyalty and buy-in to your project without a clear vision for how that would actually govern, how you would actually be a governing party is not something I find serious or interesting. It often seemed that Forward expected to create change through the sheer force of Yang's personality and a healthy dose of hope. Hmm. The lack of core beliefs and ideas, it turned out, was precisely its selling point. If everyone continued to believe in the end result, the details wouldn't matter. And it talks about how this uh, reminded her of some failed companies as of recently and uh, then it talks about the cnn segment that we covered where jim acosta interviewed andrew gang and asked is this just an attempt to kind of keep you relevant and your name in the news so that you can run for something larger like president once again in the future and yang didn't really clearly rule that out which makes it feel like oh, maybe that's kind of what you're doing and that's why you're not trying to clearly draw some lines in the sand as to what you stand for uh this all sounds great in the press, but in practice, that's not what happened. When the text chapters, and then give some specifics, and actually, let me jump back. According to the messaging guidelines we received in response to questions regarding Forward's official stance on hot button issues, we were to explain that candidates and party members should have the freedom to represent their communities and advance their views freely. In other words, how gun control is handled in California may not be the same way Florida deals with gun control. Forward party candidates should be able to handle issues as best suits their state, and then talks about how that sounds good in theory, but in practice, it uh, doesn't as effectively. And then just to kind of round this out, government affects real people's lives and the founders built an elegant yet fragile system of checks and balances to prevent social disruption from consuming it. As technologists often discover breaking industries and companies apart is easy. It's building value from the disruption that is difficult. A party that stands on a platform, nothing is reflective of an emerging culture that prizes showmanship over substance and the misguided belief that if you convince enough people to believe in something, it is true. And so she then starts making the case that while, yes, there's issues with the two-party structure, maybe it's not as bad as people think, which I don't even think is the argument that needs to be made here. Instead, I think it's more about, yes, it's admirable to want something different, want more options, want a third party. All those things are admirable. But... It is the way you go about it, and I do think the authenticity of your ambition. And if this is just uh, showmanship, if it's just a chance for you to be seen as the guy with the new above-it-all ideas or gal with the new above-it-all ideas, instead of an actual set of long-term solutions that you hope to fight for and implement and see them through. And I think... I worded that way and I think that way because that is how third parties will become more viable. A long-term strategy that is very structural, just randomly as No Labels is doing or uh, as we've seen some other third parties and definitely the forward parties doing, trying to emerge as, as a national candidate party, putting forward a national candidate for the presidency, for example, to me shows a level of unseriousness because there are very structural things that need to be done before third parties are going to be viable whatsoever. And a big one is changing the way our elections are run toward a ranked choice voting model where people can kind of have multiple options. They put on a ballot and then your vote's not as wasted as it could be with our current uh, first past the post voting structure and then starting more at a local level, getting some victories in, making clear what your party stands for. That I think is how you grow something. It's 
lobbying and trying to push through honestly through the current democratic party because that's where these ideas are more accepted structural changes to our elections again a big one being ranked choice voting instead of first past the uh, post voting and then while you're doing that trying to get some relevance in smaller local state spaces and conversations and then go from there but whenever it's just this election cycle in the next two years we're going to fundamentally change the reality of our political process and destroy the GOP and Democratic Party, to me, seems like a publicity stunt and not a serious attempt to change the structure of our political process that right now is centered around two-party systems. So push for electoral reforms, push for ranked choice voting, work on a local level, and go from the ground up. That would be my advice if it's something you're passionate about. Republicans, as we have talked about extensively on the show, are now pushing for an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden over their allegations against him of being caught up in a bribery scheme, but they keep not being able to provide evidence to that effect. And I came across a segment where Sean Hannity is interviewing Kevin McCarthy and walks through all the reasons he feels like this is a legitimate scandal. He feels that now there's enough evidence to really be, if nothing else, concerned or to feel like something has been proven about President Biden and this scheme, this set of allegations against him from Republicans. And it is nice, just the way that he walks through will be nice for me to be able to respond to it very easy. He just point, point, and I can go back and for all of you walk through the details of why what he's saying is so dishonest in a very formatted form that I think will be beneficial. Because I spend a lot of time here, there, that claim, this claim, uh, debunking it, every so often going through in kind of one concise, consolidated place, the reasons why this broader narrative about Biden is just so false, I think is beneficial. So here is Sean Handy making the case to Kevin McCarthy for why indeed an impeachment inquiry is justified and this is a real scandal, and then I will uh, debunk it. Here's where I wanna go with this though, because uh, to me, uh, I don't care how much the media ignores it or the Democratic Party ignores it. This is a real Joe Biden, not Hunter Biden, bribery scandal allegation here. We know now the following. Let's go through the facts. We know that Joe lied both as a president and as a candidate when he repeatedly denied ever speaking to Hunter, his brother, or his words, anybody for that matter, about their foreign business dealings. We know that was a lie. We know that Joe Biden leveraged one billion taxpayer dollars in loan guarantees for Ukraine and insisted that a prosecutor be fired in six hours. Uh, as a result of that, his son Hunter, who was sitting on a board that he admitted on Good Morning America that he had no experience to be on, continued to get paid. Ultimately, it was millions of dollars in the end. And, and my question is, Tell me how that's not influence peddling. You know, the bribery statute, Mr. Speaker, does not demand that somebody benefit themselves financially. In this case, the vice president, as the 1023 form pointed out, took a specific action and his family, you know, was involved in personal enrichment. That being Hunter, based on his actions. Is that bribery to you? And we'll get to Kevin McCarthy's response after walking through what Sean Hannity said there. It's interesting, if you weren't familiar with what Sean Handy was saying, the details of the talking points he's putting forward, most people would assume he has to be being honest, right? Just based on how confidently he's saying all of that and kind of the illusion of specifics and uh, knowledge. But no, he wasn't being honest whatsoever. And I jotted down his points so we can go through 
all of them without missing a single one, starting off with him saying that President Biden has been confirmed to have been lying, that Republicans have uncovered the fact, I guess, is Sean Hannity's belief, that Biden was lying when he said on the 2020 presidential campaign trail and then reaffirmed multiple times afterward that he uh, didn't have knowledge of, didn't talk to Hunter Biden about, wasn't a part of Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings. Now, it's not the case that those things have been proven to be lies. I don't know where Sean Hannity's getting that from. Maybe he's referencing not the Devin Archer testimony, but the dishonest talking points about the Devin Archer testimony. It's been one of the most mind-boggling things watching a moment where the Republican case against Biden kind of got further demolished and they've now taken that and spun it as if it was a win. And if you don't know uh, what I'm referring to, Devin Archer is the former business associate of Hunter Biden. And House Republicans, the House Oversight Committee, brought him in for a closed door meeting that we now have the transcript from. And it was coined as a bombshell interview. It's supposed to reveal a bunch of information about these allegations. But then, whether he was trying to or not, Devin Archer assisted in debunking a bunch of the key parts, the key aspects of the allegations against President Biden, including this talking point that Biden was in the know, he was talking to Hunter Biden about, he was in on, in some way, Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings. That's not the case, at least according to the witness that Republicans called that was supposed to reveal this information, being Devin Archer, who said he hadn't observed or witnessed or knew of any situation where Joe Biden was talking about or in on the foreign business dealings of Hunter Biden. And Joe Biden indeed would be on the phone a lot with Hunter Biden because their father and son, especially after the son of Joe Biden, brother of Hunter Biden, Bo Biden passed away, they were on the phone quite consistently. But even then, even when Hunter Biden was around business associates, so he would throw Biden on speakerphone and the people would say hello and there'd be small talk. That's all it would be is what Devin Archer said, small talk, how's the weather, stuff like that. And never did business dealings come up. Never did that subject come up whenever Biden was on the phone. The exact opposite of what Sean Hannity is saying. According to the witness that Republicans called and Republicans thought were going uh, was going to be this big bombshell mo moment. But despite that testimony and the transcript being released that we can all go and read, Republicans are pretending like that testimony proved something it absolutely did not. And then he goes on to say that Biden withheld aid uh, to leverage the firing of a top prosecutor in Ukraine, which is indeed the case. But the reasoning that Sean Hannity is saying Biden did that is not accurate. So Sean Hannity and people in the right wing say that Biden to benefit Burisma, which is the company that Hunter Biden worked at, was trying to use his power as vice president to get Victor Shokin, the top prosecutor at the time, fired, removed from that position of authority because he was going to cause trouble for Burisma. So Joe Biden was, because he was bribed or something, trying to help his son by helping Burisma by getting rid of this top prosecutor, Victor uh, Shokin. But multiple points on this just destroy that. Number one, 
This was in line with the broader anti-corruption measures that the United States was taking in Ukraine and Viktor Shokin, long record of corruption allegations against him. So this was what Biden was supposed to be doing in kind of getting rid of, uh, getting rid of and rooting out corruption in Ukraine. Number two, our European allies wanted this to happen. They were also pushing for this. And so Biden was acting in accordance with, in alignment with our European allies and the broader U.S. government stance. And number three, and this is just wild. So Victor Shokin had, as I said, a bunch of corruption allegations against him, the top prosecutor. And this includes him acting corruptly, the allegation being in the interest of Burisma. So he was corrupt in that he wasn't properly investigating and wasn't properly open to any prosecutorial action or just an extensive investigation into Burisma and the top executive there. And so Joe Biden in that case would have been doing the thing that was in the exact opposite interest, not in the interest of his son Hunter Biden and Hunter Biden's business where he was working, which was Burisma. And uh, Archer, the business associate of Hunter Biden acknowledged in that same closed door meeting based on the transcript that we now have access to that having Viktor Shokin, that top prosecutor in Ukraine, was actually beneficial to Burisma because, quote, he did not pursue corruption investigations against Burisma's owner, effectively shielding the owner from prosecution. And that was a statement from Democratic Representative Dan Goldman that then Devin Archer agreed with. So by leveraging aid, to get Victor Shokin fired, Biden was acting the opposite way than what you would have done if you were trying to help Burisma and thus help his son. Every which way you look at this, the allegations do not stand. It's pretty incredible. And even we could go on and on and on, specifics about the timeline of when this investigation was shelved and then when Biden did the thing he did. And again, this was all in accordance with and uh, in line with what the broader international community was wanting at that point in time and putting all that aside the narrative not making sense without evidence you also take into consideration even if you had a compelling narrative oh that timing is weird you would still have to have evidence that biden was bribed and you don't but even if he was it wouldn't make any sense because he would have been bribed to do something that wasn't actually necessarily in the interest of his son's company so all of it doesn't make any sense whatsoever but they keep pushing it because it's not about facts. It's about political attacks. Here's Kevin McCarthy's response. Well, Sean, everything that you just talked about, nobody in America knew until you had a change in Congress. The FBI didn't act on their information from their informant. No one came forth. They took the words of this president. And you were right. This isn't about Hunter Biden. This is about paying to play for the Biden family because the money goes to nine different members through shell companies, much like the informant said. So we will continue to follow the information wherever it takes us and provide it to the American public. The difference here is we don't do it for political purposes. <laughs> really? Really, Kevin? Gosh. We don't do it for political purposes. Just the most gaslighting you could possibly imagine. Separate Fox News moment just to throw on the end of this segment. So funny. Kaylee McEnany is referencing the Devin Archer testimony and said this. And that's what we're going to be talking about. And of course, not a mention in the last 15 minutes of, of you know, Hunter Biden or the laptop. Kaylee, it's fascinating. What do you make of it? 
It is. I mean, when I watch the shocking Devin Archer testimony, what did we learn? We learned that President Joe. Okay, and then she goes to the similar talking points. Why is that funny? Because she says, quote, when I watched the shocking Devin Archer testimony, I learned a lot from that hearing. It would have been impossible for you to watch the testimony because it happened privately and then days went by and then a transcript was released. So I don't know if you watch words when you read them, but maybe that was a slip up. It sounds like she just thought it was another public hearing and was just referencing all the talking points she's heard and uh, highlighted her own dishonesty there. The lawyer of Donald Trump's former lawyer, so a Trump lawyer's lawyer, appeared on MSNBC with Ari Melber on The Beat for what would turn out to be a brutal, brutal interview for this individual, Charles Burnham. And to kind of give you the necessary context before diving into some clips from this, John Eastman, you might remember, is the lawyer or one of the lawyers that Mike Pence referred to as a crackpot lawyer who was around Donald Trump in the moment where he was attempting to overturn the 2020 election results. And so now John Eastman has become very relevant to the political conversation because in the most recent indictment of Donald Trump, there are unnamed co-conspirators that are told about, that are described in this indictment. And so when it goes through and explains this scheme in the conspiracy, that assumes there's multiple people and it talks about these multiple unnamed co-conspirators. And at this point in time, they're also unindicted. And so a lot of people are then curious, who are these people who Trump was conspiring with that aren't yet being named? One of them is assumed to be John Eastman, who was one of the lawyers around Donald Trump helping him concoct what potentially were unlawful actions to overturn the 2020 election results and keep Trump in power despite his 2020 election loss. And so John Eastman now, is having his representation, his lawyer, go on MSNBC and get asked about both John Eastman's actions and how this relates to Trump in the uh, moment that we're in now, which is Trump being indicted for a third time for this very scheme that John Eastman was a part of. And John Eastman himself could be in legal hot water down the road as well. Um, very, very interesting. And if John Eastman, again, as Mike Pence called him, was a crackpot lawyer. You can imagine the lawyer of a crackpot lawyer is probably a crackpot lawyer himself. And you can totally see just the wild, ridiculous moment we're in, just based on the first part of this interview I'll show you, where Ari Melber just wants to lay the groundwork. Okay, let's just get some basic facts on the table that relate to the legal troubles that Trump is in, your client could possibly be in as well. The 2020 election results, you accept them, right? and instantly everything already falls apart with this Charles Burnham. Put aside some time for this. I want to start with a, a couple quick things and then, and then get into the case. Um, but first and foremost, Donald Trump lost the 2020 election. Uh, you accept that fact? Uh, well, look, there's a lot, large portion of the country that has issues with the 2020 election. There are still discussion about things that went on. Large uh, portion of the country of believes in ghosts or horoscopes. I'm asking you, do you accept the results of the election that Donald Trump lost? Well, I'm just here as an attorney representing a client, but I think the important thing is... I, it's, I, and I'll yeah. keep moving. I want to give you the opportunity to answer it. It's a very... Very nervous and sweaty, <laughs> which, you know, I have an issue with him for the things he'll say, not his performance on television, I get that it can be difficult, but it is notable that he's clearly very uncomfortable. Very easy question to answer. If, if, if you can't answer it, I've got other questions. 
Well, my personal opinions are rather neither, neither here nor there. They're no better than anybody else's. But I would like the opportunity to address the latest news and anything you think your viewers oh, we'll would definitely, like to be interested in. We yeah. will definitely mm -hmm. get to that. I just want to get to a couple of these sort of straightforward. Okay, so can't acknowledge the results of the last election. Yikes. Uh, then we get to the second moment. This one I'd like to start is I'm glad you brought up precedent because the one thing you've never heard in any of the discussions about John Eastman in the past two years is what he did is wrong because it violates the Supreme Court's decision in Smith versus Jones, let's say. There is no Smith versus Jones. There's no Smith, there's no Jones. These are issues of first impression, right? No court has ever considered this. And so what Dr. Eastman did is exactly what he's retained to do. He's a constitution. So he'll try to lay out the case for why John Eastman did nothing wrong. He just gave Trump some advice on how if he wanted to, he could do a coup and here's how you would do it. And then they started doing it and they luckily failed. And so Trump's former lawyer's lawyer is saying, uh, I don't know why that's cracking me up, is saying that this was all new stuff. So there's no precedent for you to be saying that somehow John Eastman did something wrong because it was all original ideas. And uh, so find me a precedent that proves he was acting unlawfully or incorrectly in some way. Ari Melber will nicely fact check that law professor, he looked at precedent, he looked at history, he looked at the historical examples, presented the various options, and then recommended at the end what he thought uh, was the best option consistent with his client's interest in the law, which well, was that, simply to delay the certification. That's not quite true, sir. Uh, he mm -hmm. may have done that at times. I, I can't speak to everything he ever did. Um, but mm -hmm. the problem for, for you is in this indictment, which has all this evidence, and we've seen other other portions from the congressional probe, he didn't just do that. And when you say matter of first impression, uh, it's not as if this is some new novel thing, like an artificial intelligence, uh, you know, quandary for the Supreme Court. These are matters that, quite to the contrary of what you're claiming tonight, have been so thoroughly litigated um, that there's no daylight. There's no question that uh, politicians can't just declare themselves automatically reelected. That That's not even in the bounds of what the Supreme Court bothers to rule on. So you tonight, you sound like you're trying to say that is a virtue. It's right. It's ridiculous that I don't. OK, I don't know what I expected the defense to be of Trump. But I didn't expect this, and some of the talking points to defend John Eastman or Trump or whoever, based on this larger scheme, are just baffling me that that's the direction they're going. One of them being, it was just his freedom of speech. What? In the indictment, it says it's not about what he said, it's about what he did, and sometimes what he directed with his words other people to do. But it was the actions, the scheme, and the potential unlawful conspiracy that is getting him into legal trouble, not him claiming the election was stolen or anything like that. And so the fact that they went in that direction obviously is dishonest, but it's also just a weak, it's a weak defense. But then there, him saying, I mean, can you point to precedent that proves you're not allowed to just keep yourself in power despite a democratic election? Well, all of the cases that have ever involved our election processes and the results of elections and our entire democratic process and all the laws surrounding who goes into power when and how the election is set up and all of that, yeah, sort of proves that you're not supposed to then violate all those things. The fact that we have laws that say this is how elections are supposed to go, this is when this person is supposed to take over that position of power, this is when the transition is supposed to happen, etc. 
uh, these are the voting rights that are supposed to be respected, proves that in trying to overthrow all of that, you would be disenfranchising voters and uh, preventing the lawful processes that are outlined in the law and uh, preventing the governmental process from moving forward, such as the certification and breaking the law. If you're trying to throw out all of the laws and just make up your new ones about Trump gets to say that he's president if he wants to, then that could potentially be unlawful. And that's what's being alleged here. So I guess indeed you're right that this is unprecedented, but there's plenty of precedent that proves to us, such as our entire election system, you probably shouldn't just stay the president if you lose with the lawful process that we have set up with our elections. And then last moment we'll look at. Understood. Mm -hmm. Now you're saying today that he committed no crimes and he, oh, sure. first of all, hasn't been charged. If charged, he would be legally presumed innocent. Um, and yet someone who at times has had a different view of what you just said is John Eastman. Uh, he took the position after Jan 6, and I'm gonna sort of go in reverse, starting with what mm -hmm. was kind of circulating after uh, the actual insurrection and go, go deeper into it and you'll get time. But interestingly, we have uh, a secret email that sort of leaked where he says to Giuliani, I've decided I should be on the pardon list, if that's still in the works. And so my question for you is, which crimes do you think he was worried about being indicted for? Such a good question. We acknowledge John Eastman, he hasn't been charged with anything yet. And if he is, he's presumed innocent. But since your stance is going to be that no matter what he's charged with, he's innocent and you have that right. Why is it that he thought he needed a pardon? Oh, sure. I mean, who can even start? I mean, you remember the atmosphere in those, that time period after January 6th, the media speculation, the accusations going back and forth about all sorts of things. Any reasonable person under those circumstances, whether they were innocent or guilty, and particularly someone innocent as John Eastman was, would only prudently take that step if it was available to them. So I don't you think see there's anything that, again, surprising I'm, about that at all. You, you see that as kind of standard. Everybody wants a pardon. Uh, not everyone, as you know, indeed the vast majority of people, best we can tell, who served in the Trump administration, didn't seek pardons. It would seem especially- Yeah, so he's saying, well, he just thought he was going to be unfairly targeted. Okay. I think it's because, and as Ari Melber is alluding to, he was worried that some of the advice he was giving, the plan he was concocting, the scheme he was helping to implement that would have kept someone president despite the results of the election uh, could have violated the law and wanted a pardon on his way out to make sure he wasn't held accountable for that. Truly wild stuff. The Trump lawyer's lawyer is uh, not doing so well in his public defense of Trump and John Eastman. Governor of Florida and Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis appeared on the Today Show for an interview with Dasha Burns on NBC and finally got fact-checked, finally got corrected about his dishonest point about abortion, late-term abortions. He didn't say in this interview, but he has said before, post-birth abortions, which is just not a thing. That's called murder, Ron. Uh, and says that Democrats want that. Sure, say whatever you want whenever you want it, I guess, is the new standard for some of these GOP candidates. And finally, Dasha Burns said, whoa, 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 I'm going to stop you there. We've seen in past interviews, they just let him say stuff like that. Not this time. Really good to see. Take a look.
rivals. Recently, his biggest individual donor threatening to pull back his cash unless Governor DeSantis takes less extreme positions and shows he can win over moderates. A chief concern, the six-week abortion ban DeSantis signed in Florida. It's an issue Democrats have worked to use against him and other Republicans on the campaign trail. The governor has implied the issue should be left to individual states. So would you veto any sort of federal bill that tries to put a nationwide ban in place? So we will be a pro-life president and, and we will... Who's we? We won't be a pro-life president. You could say I will be support pro-life policies. Um, I would not allow uh, what a lot of the left wants to do, which is to override pro-life protections throughout the country, all the way up really until the moment of birth in some instances, which I think is, is infanticide. Uh, well, it is actually, not I got to push back on you on that because that that's a, a misrepresentation of, of what's happening. I mean, that 1.3% of abortions happen at 21 weeks or higher. There's no, no right. evidence of Democrats pushing for but, but their abortions view up is, until... Their view is, is that all the way up into that, yet there should not be any legal protections. Uh, there is no in indication of Democrats right, that pushing you're, you're for right. that. Well, yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, no. Uh, why are you challenging me? That's not fair. All these other interviews that let me just say anything I wanted. Good job, Dasha Burns. I don't know why so many interviewers just let those talking points go because excuse me of course the only late-term abortions that happen the only ones are medically necessary abortions meaning the life of the mothers being threatened the fetus is no longer viable there is not a single example of and they've been looking for it of a woman who carries uh or is pregnant for nine months goes through all of that and then in the ninth month goes, ah, never mind. Nope. Healthy fetus, healthy me, but no. It just doesn't happen. And so they're arguing against this uh, mythical position so they don't have to answer for their actual position, which is a six-week abortion ban in the state of Florida. He wants to not talk about that because he knows it's unpopular in the country. And so he has to make it about, well, I'm just arguing against post-birth abortion and late-term abortion. Well, Post-birth abortion doesn't happen, and late-term abortions only happen when absolutely medically necessary, again, to protect the life of the mother, when the fetus is no longer viable. The only reason why Democrats are much more careful about the language of laws on this is because often when lawmakers craft bans, even when they're late-term related, they leave out the... Uh, say of medical experts so the complex set of variables that allow a medical expert to decide when it is necessary is left out of the conversation and the politician puts the language in there that doesn't take into consideration how complex these variables are and when exactly that judgment call is made it is complex and it's not just like a light turns on and says now there's a large enough threat right it, it's a call and a lot of things that we don't even understand if we're not all experts on these subjects and when you leave it up to Ron DeSantis to decide how you define it as medically necessary. Um, often things are left out and people are hurt because of it. And we've seen that with some of these bans already. And so that's why the Democratic Party position is just largely popular in the country. It's reasonable. It's moderate. It's kind of the standard that people adopted after Roe v. Wade largely and should be uncontroversial, but it obviously still is. Uh, and then here's this moment where he gets asked about Trump and the primary. DeSantis says some things, and then he finally 
sort of accepts and is willing to say in more stark terms than he has in a, lot, uh, a long time that Trump lost in 2020. If the election is a referendum on Joe Biden's policies and the failures that we've seen, and we are presenting a positive vision for the future, we will win the presidency uh, and we will have a chance to turn the country around. If, on the other hand, uh, the election is not about January 20th, 2025, but January 6th, 2021, or what document was left by the toilet at Mar-a-Lago, if it's a referendum on that, we are going to lose. But and that's Trump just the, the reality. Race, you know with Trump in the race, that is largely what it's going to be about. And right now, and you're not, not fighting that's against not, Go, Dasha Burns. I love this interview. So that's, Biden, that's you're not, fighting against that's Trump. Not a, that's not a pathway for success for the Republican Party. I think a lot of our voters understand that. Yes or no, did Donald Trump lose the 2020 election? Whoever puts their hand on the Bible on January 20th every four years, uh, is the winner. Okay, but respectfully, you did not clearly answer that question. And if you can't give a yes or no because on whether or not Trump lost, then how well, can of course, you... No, of, of course he lost. Uh, Trump... Then why is that the first time you've said that? Trump lost the 2020 of, election. Of course. Okay. Uh, Joe Biden's the president. But the issue is, I think, what, what people in the media and elsewhere, they want to act like somehow this was just like the perfect... And he's going to say perfect election, but in the clip cuts off I, i've already addressed the talking point so many times obviously every election has flaws but actually this one was deemed to be after investigation after investigation audit after audit recount after recount one of the most secure we've had and definitely there was no outcome determinative election fraud uh but i want to address it just i actually wasn't planning on doing this in the segment but i've been jotting down uh for a segment i don't think we'll have time for today a bunch of Biden related policy items that I think ended up being really good. And I'd forgotten that he said this. So let's go through quickly and address this point. If the election is a referendum on Joe Biden's policies and the failures that we've seen, and we are presenting a positive vision for the future, we will win the. Pre so, of course, a Republican presidential candidate is going to say something like that, no matter what Biden does, because he wants to portray himself as the better option. So he's going to say everything Biden did was horrible. But what bothers me so much about that and about this current situation we're in with talking points like that is right, left and center politically. So many more people resonate way more than I feel is justified with that message. And so a lot of people, even on the left, I think are not at all acknowledging achievements when it comes to Biden's presidency, which also is a disservice to accuracy and the truth. So then I'm trying to balance the scale a little bit. And uh, just like how we should be honest about the failures of the Biden administration, such as his decision on the Willow Project and the negative ramifications of that, you also have to be honest about the achievements. And I think some people on the left, in the name of wanting the Democratic Party to be more progressive, which is good, and uh, wanting to push the Democratic Party further, also good, then end up, in the name of something good, doing something bad, which is almost dishonestly ignoring real steps forward and real achievements. And that is a disservice to accuracy and a disservice to hope for people. You want people to know that because of a lot of people doing a lot of work to get Joe Biden elected over Donald Trump, real progress has been made. <clears throat> Excuse me. So when I hear DeSantis say that and others say stuff like that, my response, I want kind of to respond with, 
Do you mean, as far as all these policy failures, the American Rescue Plan, trillions of dollars of relief and the economic downturn that the pandemic caused, millions of jobs created because of that based on an independent analysis, first major gun safety bill in decades, pulling out of America's longest war, largest investment in green energy in history, millions of green energy jobs will be created because of that, lowering prescription drug costs, including allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices, capping the cost of insulin for Medicare recipients out of pocket at $35 per month, raising the minimum wage for federal government workers, Katanji Brown Jackson getting on the Supreme Court, PACT Act giving health care to veterans who were exposed to the toxic burn pits, the Chips and Science Act bringing more semiconductor manufacturing to America once in a generation, infrastructure law rebuilding roads and bridges, increasing access to clean and reliable drinking water, repairing uh, airports, expanding broadband, investing in passenger rail. Or are you saying the big failure is his economic record, unemployment back down to historic lows hitting the lowest it's been in 50 years inflation down to three percent and dropping and lower than other comparable economy economies other g7 countries real wages increasing 2.4 percent gdp growth is that the big failure you're talking about because compared to other presidencies historically that's actually a pretty impressive record not that it's what we want it to be as progressive but in the sake um or i should say in the interest of for the sake of honesty accuracy and transparency just like how we have to do with the failures you also have to acknowledge real achievement and i think if more people were doing that maybe the perception of the Biden administration among the american electorate could be a little bit different which we want it to be different we want it to be better going into the 2024 presidential election against donald trump and then also make sure people are aware of the flaws and bad decisions like the willow project and others but uh don't let your ambition to push the democratic party as you should want to do get in the way of an honest analysis of uh any presidency including biden's thank you all so much for watching and listening to today's show i will see you tomorrow